Casey and worship team. Good morning again. Please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1 as we continue our exposition of John's gospel. And today what we come to, what I think is just a monumental text because John says something that is monumental, earth-shattering in every way. Uh, here in the text this morning, and I want us to call it. I want to call your attention, as Lloyd Jones always loved to say, to that mainly this morning. So let us hear now the word of the Lord, as inspired by His Spirit. Beginning verse twenty-nine, verse thirty-four, John chapter one. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "And here it is. Behold, the Lamb of God." takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Before this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of the living God. May he bind it to our hearts. We might and cause us to live out these things for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we could just read this text and go home almost. It is that simple and it is yet that profound that Christ Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. God, this morning I pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear glorious things from this text. Or maybe we've been in church and we've heard it a thousand times. But God, I pray we would never get old to hear of your redeeming love for sinners in Christ Jesus. I pray you build your church, God, in us and through us. The gates of hell might not overcome it. I pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, a risen Lord, the Lamb of God. Amen. Well, this morning we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And what, I can't think of a better text to do that than this one. Of course, I probably say that about a lot of the texts. You say, come on, you like all the texts this way. Well, we love the Bible here, Christ Fellowship Church, I believe. And I'll start with a question. I've asked you this before, but I ask it again because I think we have to ask this over and over and over of ourselves. Even if we've been walking with the Lord 50 years or five years or five days, we have to ask ourselves, and it's this, what is your deepest need? How do you see it? What is the deepest need of your life, your heart? How do you see this? Is it, is your deepest need for more money in your bank account? Some of us would say, well, if I were to win the publisher's clearinghouse, you know, all my problems would be solved, right? That's the deepest need of my heart. Certainly our society would probably answer that way. That would do it right. But as a man a long time ago in ministry told me, if money will solve your problems, then you don't have a problem. That's probably true. What about a more satisfying career? You said, I just hate my job. My deepest needs for a more satisfying career. Maybe better health. Maybe a better marriage. Maybe a better husband or wife. You say, if she just changed or if he just changed, that's really the deepest need in my life. Maybe it's to be married. Maybe you're not married. Do you want to be married? You say, if I just had a wife or a husband, that's the deepest need I have. Or if you have children, I have children. Maybe, maybe you think, if I just had better behaved children, they'd just be better and I didn't have as much stress because of them. Well, that is my deepest need right now, to have well-behaved children. I can relate to that. It's not my deepest need. What about a less stressful job, less stress? It can be lots of things of what is your deepest need. I think John gets at it here. John the Baptist, the first Baptist. I think he gets at it here what the deepest need of our hearts of every human being who's ever lived, the deepest need, right, here in this text this morning. 
Now, last week we saw the first day of Jesus' ministry, of his public ministry. John spoke of one greater than himself who was coming, the last, actually the last few weeks. And so there he basically told us that he's the one reason, that Jesus is the one reason for his existence. And I argued a couple weeks ago that he is the one reason for our existence if we are Christians, right? To honor and glorify him, to live for his glory. Now we've reached the second day. John the Baptist, the second day of Jesus' public ministry, he sees Jesus walking toward him and he cries out, there he is, there he is, there he is, bearing witness to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this important witness, John makes great statements about both the person and the work of the Messiah. We see both of those in this simple statement, both his person and his work. We're going to look at those separately because there's two different issues, of course. And we see statements in here that are central to the gospel message of salvation, central to redemption. One statement in particular, and I would argue is the most important announcement ever made in the history of the world, ever. Say, that's a big statement, right? That's a, that's, that's a pretty bold statement, Pastor Jeff, for you to make, the most important announcement. Lots of announcements, right? Good announcements, bad announcements, but I would argue this is the most important announcement because it's announcing the coming of the one who will meet the deepest needs, need of all humanity. It gets back to the question I just opened with. So John's announcement here, we learn two things about Jesus. And there are two things that sit at the heart of the gospel. And those are my two main points. The first of which is this. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, verses 29 and 30. You say, well, duh. To which I say, well, duh. (laughs) Okay, there are a lot of things I want to get over. And I pray this every Sunday, and I talk to you about this because I talk to myself about this. Yes, I talk to myself. I hope you talk to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said we should be preaching to ourselves, and it's important what we say to ourselves. But I want you to never get over the fact that the Lamb of God came to take away your sin. Never, 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 ever get over that. You say, well, we hear that every Sunday. And it's easy for us to kind of become like the frog in the kettle, right? We just get used to the water. We get used to the fact, okay, Jesus took this way the sin of the world, paid for my sins. I know, we sing it, we pray it. But that's, that's it, right? That's, that's all we've got, but that's all we need, right? It's the one bullet in our gun here at Christ Fellowship, and it's, it's the only bullet we need, right? And so in this statement, John the Baptist tells us about Jesus' person, who he is, his person, his work, what he came to do. First, his person. Jesus is... Behold the Lamb of God. Okay, that's who he is. He's the Lamb of God. And of course, this is the fulfillment of all those pictures, all that stuff in the Old Testament that causes you to bog down in your, your yearly read through the Bible plan yet again about this time when you get in Leviticus, right? All the blood, all the guts, all that stuff, all those sacrifices, all the festivals. You're like, man, is this ever going to end? All those names, all those genealogies, what in the world is he writing about? He's writing about Jesus, right here. It culminates right here. All that stuff, and it's important stuff, read it, don't skip over it, don't go to sleep. It's important because it points to the Lamb of God. This is the fulfillment. He's the Passover Lamb. Think of just a couple of, uh, I think he's mainly got two things in view here. One, the Passover Lamb of Exodus chapter 12. And also the servant lamb of Isaiah 53, 7. One of the most prominent images in the Old Testament is the sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed for the remission of the people's sins. But it had to be done over and over, year in and year out, right? There were sacrifices daily. In Exodus 12, we learn that God delivered Israel from slavery by sending the death angel to, to kill the firstborn in each family who did not have the blood of the lamb painted over their door, Right? Now, all of Israel had what? The blood of the lamb painted over their door, over their door jam. And so the the death angel passed over them, but killed all the firstborn of Egypt. The lamb of God. The lamb of God, the blood. The blood painted over the door. Is the blood of Jesus painted over the door of your heart? We can just get right at it right now, can't we? Right here. We see it. We see how that's, Christ is even pictured in the Passover. And, and, and you know, we sell it, the, the Jews celebrate the Passover. Today we kind of celebrate in the Lord's Supper the new Passover. It's kind of a new Passover meal. 
They have the Passover festival, the Passover meal, and so we do the same today, the, only on this side of the cross, in honor of and picturing the fulfillment of the Passover. So what a great day for us to take the Lord's Supper. So the death angel passed over and not killed the firstborn because of the blood of the lamb, and that showed what? The principle of substitution, that the lamb took the place of the firstborn, right? The substitution, we see that here, given to satisfy God's wrath. So calling Jesus the Lamb of God was John's way of saying that the blood causes God's wrath to pass over all those who trust in him. You see, you see this beautiful picture of your salvation? Of why you trust in this blood, the blood of this Lamb, the blood shed, the blood he came to shed? Well, think about this. Under the Old Covenant, there were two lambs whose blood was shed. There was one lamb who was sacrificed, who was killed at the altar, but there was another lamb. And there's a ceremony that, ceremony that was performed with that lamb, or that goat, rather, two goats, the goat in which the, the priest laid his hands on the head of the goat, transferring the sins of the people onto the goat, and he was kept alive, but he was sent out into the wilderness. And what was this? Strange ceremony. Well, it was symbolic of taking the sins of the people away, taking them out, away from them, taking them out into the wilderness. Right? Of course, the goat would go out. What would happen to the goat? The goats live out in the wilderness by themselves? Not for long. Usually pray. And so they would be killed, but they borne the sins. They'd taken the sins on themselves, on their head, borne the sins on their head out into the wilderness, away from the people. What does the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, what did he come to do? He came to take away your sins, remove your sins as far as east is from west, to take your sins away from you out there and not in here anymore. What's the Old Testament about? What's Exodus about? It's about Jesus, right? Now that sort of brings a little bit of zest, a little bit of life to your devotional, right? Read Leviticus or read Hebrews too. Read those together. That'll con you'll continue reading on, I promise. So, two goats, lamb of God. I mean, day by day, year by year, lambs are sacrificed in the temple as a constant reminder of the people's need for forgiveness. Constantly, every day, reminded they need forgiveness. Sometimes I think we need to be reminded of what we've what we have in Christ, right? And that's what I want this to be for some of you. is a reminder of what we have in Him. That the deepest need of our hearts has been met. We'll see what's all bound up in that as we walk through this. No doubt John was also alluding to Isaiah 53. Which foretold the coming of the suffering Savior. All we like sheep have what? Been faithful? No. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. That's who we were. That's the way we were. If you're in Christ, that's, your, that's the old you. That's who you were. But it doesn't stop there, does it? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. You'd stray like sheep. You'd... You had strayed, you had rebelled against your creator and God laid upon him your rebellion. Isaiah 53, 6, 7. We see a powerful illustration of this. And this is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I know I say that about a lot of stories. But this one, Genesis 22. Abraham, God calls Abraham to take his son Isaac up to the Mount Moriah and do what? Kill him. He's waited for decades for this son or promise to be born. He's born and God says, okay, now take him and slay him as an offering to me. Can you imagine what this must have been like? What he must have thought, wait a minute, I've waited this whole time and you, this is the son of promise through, the, through whom the line, the, uh, the line is going to stretch all the way to the one who's going to come and take away sins finally and fully and now you want me to take him and kill him? Imagine if God asked for you to do this to one of your children, what that would have been like. No matter how mad you get at them sometimes, right? We, this would have been gut-wrenching. 
And so Isaac noticed the fire in the wood. You remember I've preached a sermon on this, a couple of sermons on this here a while back. The fire in the wood, he says, but I see the fire in the wood, but hey, Dad, where's the lamb for the offering? He'd been raised. They'd done family worship. They'd been, they'd been to the temple, right? He'd been raised in the discipline instruction of the Lord. He knew there's got to be a sacrifice. Where is it? And what did, what did Abraham say? So God himself will provide a lamb. And of course, many of you know the rest of the story. God provided, he let, I, he let Abraham tie his son Isaac to the altar and he's about to, as the knife was about to fall just at the last second, God spoke from heaven and said, okay, stop. And he sent a ram to be the substitute. What a great illustration of what God did in slaying his only son for us only. There was no 11th hour reprieve for Jesus. Let this cup pass from me. He prayed in, in, in Gethsemane, but the cup did not pass from him. It was God's will. It pleased the Lord. It's the will of God to crush him, Isaiah 53 said. That verse is always fascinating to me. It pleased the Lord to crush him, the Hebrew literally says. He did that for you. He crushed him for you. He crushed him for me. And it pleased him. And of course, the sacrifice pleased him. We know that from the resurrection, which we celebrated a couple weeks ago. And as we, I spoke of in a sermon then, Where's the lamb? That was the question offered by the Old Testament. Where's the lamb? Because those sacrifices did not deal finally and fully with sin, did they? Or else they wouldn't have had to be offered in perpetuity daily. Where's the lamb? The Old Testament leaves uh, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant leaves us with that question. Where's the lamb? We see he's coming right here, right here. Where's the true lamb to take away sin? John says, "Here he is. Here he is." On this monumental day beside the Jordan River, John the Baptist saw the Lord coming toward him and he uttered perhaps the most important sentence in all of human history. Look, look, behold, look, Christ fellowship, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. All those types and shadows and promises, all the sacrifices, all the, all the festivals, all that pomp and circumstance in the Old Testament, all the blood and the guts and the gore, it points to him, is fulfilled in him. And here he is. Here he is. He's come to take away the sin of the world. This speaks of his work. So his person, he's the Lamb of God. So he announces the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. What he come to do? Take away the sin of the world. This is his work. Person, the Lamb of God, the work, he came. Why? Take away the sin of the world. I mean, people wonder about this today. I've been asked this, I'm sure you have. What's the deal with Jesus? I mean, I grew up in a semi biblically literate society, and I was a kid down the deep south, and you know, people knew who Jesus was, more or less, but not anymore. I have people say, especially when I worked in journalism, they say, What's the deal with this Jesus? I know he's a carpenter, and they knew a few things about him. What's the deal? Why did he come? Great opportunity, right? I mean, in John's day, even then, they weren't looking for this kind of Messiah, this kind of Redeemer. They were looking for a spiritual reformer like Elijah or a deliverer like Moses to throw off the chains of, 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 of their slavery to Rome. They're looking for that kind of Redeemer, that kind of Savior. But that would not answer their most fundamental need. And that wouldn't answer your most fundamental need. I think today in our country, in the United States of America, I'm thankful for our country, but I think little has changed because I think today we're looking for a political savior or a cultural savior, maybe a cultural warrior, right? We elect the right president, we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll bring in the new Jerusalem, right? It's almost that sense among the people and, and God forbid it be that among us, let me say that. Even though sometimes the evangelicals, it does seem that way, doesn't it? I think many of us in this country, we're looking to ourselves as little saviors, as little redeemers, looking to our own goodness, our own, our own identity. We're looking for, as the old song says, we're looking for love in all the wrong places, aren't we? That's the human heart. Our fundamental need, the most fundamental need remains the same as those who lived in Jesus' day. It remains the same for every individual throughout human history. And it's this. It's cleansing from sin. It's rescue from the wrath of God. 
This is what the world truly needs. Cleansing from sin and rescue from God's wrath. The world needs to have its sin taken away and be reconciled to a holy God. Because every sinner, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who has ever lived has broken God's holy law. And stands, every one of us stands condemned before God and facing his unmediated wrath. And what we need is a mediator to mediate the wrath, right? That's what we need. So I use the word unmediated. That's what we're facing. If you're outside of Christ, and I, and I say this, this is a, even in the church sometimes, what I'm about to say is countercultural for a lot of evangelicals. So I'm going to say this. I want to say this softly and tenderly, okay? If you're outside of Christ, God is not for you. He's against you. And that's hard to hear. And it's even hard for me to say, given that we, we, I grew up in kind of a sentimental kind of, with a sentimental sort of country music, Jesus. You know, I like to listen to those Jesus sometimes. It's not for the theology. I kind of grew up with that too. But if, if God, there's a very real sense in which if you're outside of Christ, your greatest problem is God. It's God. It's his wrath. He's a holy God. You've offended him. You must be reconciled to him. And how will that take place? Well, John tells us here, the Lamb of God who came to what? Take away the sin of the world. You've broken God's holy law. And you're condemned. You're guilty. You need your guilt taken away. That's it. That is the most fundamental need of the human heart. Have your guilt dealt with. Have your sin dealt with. Of course, there's good news. For God to love the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we'll get to that, but we see it here. It makes its first appearance here. God so loved the world, he gave his son. His son, that you would not perish but have eternal life. God sent Jesus to meet our deepest need to take away our sin. How? By taking our sin, taking our guilt on himself. 1 Peter 2, 24. Beautiful, beautiful words here. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's good news. Yes, God is against you, but in Christ he is for you. And he is for you forever when you're in Christ. He bore Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So what does John mean here by took away the sins of the world? Does this mean that every single person without exception will be saved? They're going to go to heaven that we don't even need to worry about evangelism? Well, there's some that take it that way. We call them universalists. They believe that Jesus saved everybody and irrespective, regardless of what you do with him or think about him or believe in him, reject him, embrace him, hate him, love him. Live for him, live against him, you're going to be saved. I don't think that's what this means. I think scripture is very, very clear that that's not what this means. Not what John means by world. The others who believe that Christ died for every single person indiscriminately so that even though most people who reject Christ, Christ still died for them. I don't think that's it either. That's close, closer, <laughs> closer. I don't think that's it either. I don't think that was John, that's what John's getting out here. I think, I think that will become evident as we move through the gospel, through, through his gospel here. Here's what it means. It means only those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ, they will be saved. Christ died for them. I call them the elect. When Jesus was on the cross, something was happening. There was a transaction happening. You were being saved. All those who will be saved were being saved. Their sins were being paid for. Nothing was left to chance. Because if God had made the offer and then stepped back and left us alone and didn't work in our hearts and give us a new birth, as we looked at in Sunday school this morning, John 3, nothing would have happened. No one would have taken the offer. They would not have taken God up on his offer. Without his unilateral grace, it would never have happened. And if Jesus died for everybody without indiscriminately, then there are people in hell today whose sins have been paid for, right? 
That's another teaching for another time, but, but I think that's what world means. We gotta, I, think this, I, think, or I think this is what world means. Only those who repent of their sins, believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be forgiven, will have their sins taken away. I think John uses world here to give a contrast with Jewish exclusivism. I think he's saying that Jesus came to save not only Jews, but also the Gentiles, which is not the Jews, but the rest of the world, right? Those people, all people, all kinds of people, every kind of people, he came to die for them. So that's what I think he means by world. I mean, under the old covenant, a lamb was offered for the entire nation of Israel, not for any other nation, right? Only Israel. And Jesus is the lamb for the whole world, the one who is the Son of God, who has the blood of infinite worth and is able to pay the debt of every sinner who will believe in him. Nothing lacking in the atonement. Nothing at all. All who call upon the name of the Lord, we have, we have evidence in Scripture. We have every confidence. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, well, yeah, if I, what, if, what, if, you know, what if I want to be saved? What if I'm not one of those elect people? Well, if you want to be saved, you're elect. That's a sign, right, that you repent and believe. We can get really wrapped up in that. We have to be careful with that, how we frame it either way, right? Again, another teaching for another time. But it's glorious because Jesus died for the whole world. This world that, that hates him, that reviles him, that has rebelled against him, this world that is east of Eden, he died for that world. It's actually greater than how we usually think of it. The extent is greater. It's more glorious. He died for rebels, the whole world's rebelled against him, right? In Adam, the second Adam came to undo what the first Adam did, and that is to bring us to himself, to bring sinners in this world, rebels, to make enemies his friends. We've sung about that today. You were once his enemy, now you're seated at his table. You're going to be seated at his table here in just a few minutes. I think there's definitely an echo here of Isaiah 53. And the fact that at the heart of the earth-shaking declaration is vicarious atonement. The two goats. All those who trust in Jesus have their sins put on Christ. Just like the goat. Just like the scapegoat. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's number two. Okay, there's the first, the greatest declaration. Well, here's the second greatest declaration in my opinion. This is not my second point. I'm almost there, but not quite. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made him a new no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you have not memorized that verse, memorize it. I think that's actually my translation of it when I did this in Greek because I can remember it well. It's accurate. <laughs> God made him sin who knew no sin. There you go. The spotless lamb of God knew no sin. He made him sin on our behalf who were nothing but sin. So that, with the result that, good old result clause there, for you Greek nerds, with the result that we might be made, we're made the righteousness of God in him. He gives you, he demands righteousness, God demands perfect righteousness, and he gives what he demands. So quote, paraphrase Augustine there, give what you command and command what you will. God's done that in this Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And a healthy, thriving Christian will never, ever, ever forget that truth. Why? Because it puts us in our place. It humbles us to dust. We should never tire of glorifying Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and never be failed to be blown away by the fact that he bore my sin. He took my sin on his head and took it away from me. He paid for my sin. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Never forget that. Because we should see ourselves as Paul saw himself in 1 Timothy. When he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or the chief. We all want to be the chief, right? That's the head. That's the, the big kahuna, whatever you want to call the chief. Well, that was how Paul saw himself. The chief of sinners. The foremost of sinners. The sinner par excellence. And I would argue that it wasn't Paul, it was Jeff Robinson. No, not you, Paul, it was me. I'm the chief of sinners. And I believe that. I think I outsinned Paul. And I think we should all think that because we're so stupefied and stunned by his grace and what he's done for us that we could never and would never have done for ourselves. 
and saying the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, he has taken away our sin. In verse 30, we're going to move through the rest of this rather quickly. But Jesus' eternality and supreme rank, he speaks to that. He's already, we've unpacked that a couple weeks ago. He just reiterates that John does that Jesus reigns before him because he existed before John the Baptist, before the foundation of the world. He was. He's superior to me in case you're thinking about following me, John's saying, I think. You know, sometimes we become fans of, you know, preachers. John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, man, those are my heroes. I love those guys. I got Ligon Duncan and and uh, uh, Joel Beakey, and I just named pastor after preacher after preacher after preacher that I so admire. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dead Men, Spurgeon. But they would say here, don't look at me, look at him. He was before me. <laughs> That's what John's doing here, being humble. No, 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 I'm just the messenger. Those men, by the way, are just messengers. I'm just a messenger. So Jesus is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Secondly, here's my second main point. Jesus came to bring a greater baptism than John's. And this is, this is part of the work he came to do. This point is really just almost like a sub-point of the first point. It's part of, the, of, of not his person, but his work. He came to bring a greater baptism than John's. John's purpose here, I myself did not know him, verse 31, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that, that he might be revealed to Israel. I mean, John had probably had previous contact with him. I think he was kin to him. He was like, like a distant cousin. Their, mo their mothers were cousins. But he did not know Jesus was the Lamb of God until the Father and the Spirit identified him at his baptism. When he baptized Jesus. Can you imagine that? Baptizing Jesus? Wow. We'll see his posture for that in just a minute. I mean, John's authority to make such a pronouncement comes not on his own authority, but through God's word revealed to him at Jesus' baptism. That's kind of what he's saying. This is not my authority. I'm speaking on God's authority because he came and uh, uh, he, I came to baptize him. That's my purpose for coming, John's saying here. So his identity as the Messiah would be revealed to Israel, would be revealed to the world. As Spurgeon put it, John the Baptist was the morning star which heralded the rising sun. When the sun appeared, he had no more reason for shining. It was just the morning star. Jesus is the sun, S-U-N. Turn to Matthew 3, 11 to 17. Just back a couple of books, back to your left. Let's read this account, verse 11 uh, to 17. Read this account of, of John the Baptist's baptizing of Jesus. Matthew 3, 11 to 17, sorry. I'm going to start out just to kind of preview here what John says. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Underline the fire part. We're going to come back to that here in a minute. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now here's the baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Now look at his posture. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's, underline that. That's why Jesus had to be, came to be baptized. We wonder why? Well, to fulfill all righteousness. It's fitting, Jesus said. Then he consented, John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist said, I would baptize you? You need to be baptizing me. That is the right posture toward Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> John the Baptist was indeed the, the morning star herald of the rising sun, wasn't he? So why did Jesus come to John to be baptized? I remember as a kid, I wondered about that. Why? That's really strange. He must have wanted to be a Baptist. That's what I thought. Jesus was a Southern Baptist. I thought that was exactly what this is. So, you know, we know we've got baptism right. Of course, we do use this as, this is pretty good evidence of our view of baptism, is it not? But we'll get into that later. We've got a baptism that's going to be coming up here pretty soon. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. Celebrate being Baptists. <laughs> um, 
Why did he come to be baptized? I mean, he had no sins to be cleansed of, right? He had no need to be saved. This seems a little odd to us, or it should strike us as odd. I mean, John says, I'm unworthy to baptize you, Lord. He's right, keenly aware of his own sin. I mean, John, John said, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. He doesn't say, well, John, you're a good man. Don't, don't be down on yourself, brother. He didn't say anything, does he? He doesn't say that at all. But in verse C, he says, let it be so for now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's it. That means two things. One, John the Baptist was the final prophet of the Old Covenant, as we've said. And through this prophet, God had revealed that Israel was, had to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. Israel. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the true Israel, right? Israel blew it. Jesus, the son, the first son, Israel, my son, they sinned egregiously. Jesus is the true Israel, right? He's the true son who kept the law perfectly. This was part of his act of righteousness and keeping the law perfectly, living a sinless life for our righteousness. That's why Jesus said what he said. That's why he said it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's why he said that. So Jesus was the true son. He had to keep the law, all the law, perfectly. He kept it for us. And also in his baptism, Jesus was taking on the role of our substitute. The baptism was a way for him to fully identify with us to make himself felt to be uh, out as the one to obey God's law in our place to declare allegiance, his allegiance with the Father. And of course, it was also the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, this was kind of his... Uh, his ordination, his inauguration, it was kind of like that. That's how we do ordinations, right? We, this was Jesus, uh, this was the Father saying he's here and this is his public ministry. It begins right here. That's part of it as well. All these things are wrapped up in his baptism. He's anointed, he's marked out by the Holy Spirit for ministry. And here's something we don't often think about, but this is, I think, an undertaught doctrine in the church. I know, I, and I'm guilty, I've not taught a lot on this. But Jesus was, and this is, Proof of that, Jesus was the ultimate spirit-filled man. Now, of course, Jesus was fully God, but fully man. And he is a spirit-filled man. The spirit came down and indwelt him. And everything Jesus did, all the work he did, you think, well, of course he did all these things. He's God. No, no, no. He did these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. The miracles of the power of the Holy Spirit. Praying to the Father. In what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Trusting the Father, the work he came to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the ultimate spirit-filled man, human being. And sometimes I think we forget that. We're docetists. We think, well, he just kind of seemed like a man, but the fix was on because he was God. Mm -mm. So Jesus is anointed. He's set apart for ministry here. He's anointed as the ultimate spirit-filled man. The, he says the spirit descended on him and what? Remained on him remained on him. He's, he's doing everything he does in the power of the Holy Spirit as a man, just like the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you and empower you for service and for work. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Verse 33 says, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is very, very important. Again, we're not Pentecostals, so we don't preach on this, teach on this a lot. We should. <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. Spirit baptism. It is when the Spirit of God indwells a new believer. That's spirit baptism. It's the privilege of every believer. When you were saved, you were indwelt in the Holy Spirit. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be a Pentecostal to receive that blessing. If you're in Christ, you received it. It's the privilege of every Christian. It's when God literally unzips you and climbs inside of you in the person of His Spirit and indwells us. It's the Spirit of God who empowers us to witness for Christ, who enables us to hate sin and obey God's Word. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, enables us to confess sin daily and turn from sin. It's the Spirit of God who helps us resist temptation. We could say the Spirit of God is the engine who drives sanctification. Or engine who drives the Bus of sanctification, let's put it that way, in our daily walk with the Lord. That's the Spirit. Why do you walk daily with the Lord? Why do you persevere in God's grace? Because the Spirit of God who lives in you. That's why you persevere. That's why you feel conviction of sin. It's the Spirit who lives inside you. You've been baptized into Him. 
So what about the Spirit's coming at Pentecost? Acts 2, what was up with that? Well, George Smeaton, a 19th century Scottish theologian, said that Christ's anointing with the Spirit and the day of Pentecost are two stages in the communication of the Spirit. Uh, I agree with that. It's a good way to put it. The coming of the Spirit on Christ, John's baptism, equips the Redeemer for his, for ending his office. He equipped Christ through the Spirit, ultimate Spirit-filled man. It's also... Christ's ordination into the office of Messiah, Smeaton said. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost supplies the church, that's us, with various gifts by which it efficiently exercises the spiritual life for the advancement of Christ's cause. So that's why the Spirit came. That's what was happening at Pentecost. The Spirit coming in His fullness is the birth of the church. Now, Pentecostal doctrine, I referred to that earlier. Some of you may know about this. You may have grown up in this. Pentecostals argue that the spirit, spirit baptism is the privilege of, is a second work of grace, the privilege of only a few. It's distinct from the grace given at salvation. And those baptized with the Spirit, they argue, are granted a greater measure of holiness and a greater power for witness. Spirit baptism, they say, comes after conversion and is evidenced by speaking in tongues. And so what you have is kind of a two-tiered Christianity within Pentecostalism. You have those who have received the baptism. They're kind of like <clears throat> what I've always called the turbocharged, the turbocharged Christians. And then you've got kind of the Christian light. So you have two tiers. And I have many Pentecostal friends and relatives, and I love them dearly. And they are faithful to the gospel. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love them. But I believe they're dead wrong about this. And, and, and I think this, I believe this is the privilege of every single believer. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says our baptism, our shared baptism of the Spirit unites all believers in the body of Christ, in fact. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. All. All. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. All. And so I want to graciously and lovingly disagree with my brothers and sisters who hold to that doctrine. And I think it, but I do think it's, I do think it's dangerous because it really creates this two-tiered, and I've seen this in, in, in being in those circles when I was younger, that there's really a sense in which there's a pride about those who have it, and there's a, a sort of a looking down on those who don't. Again, love them, appreciate them, but disagree and don't think that's, don't think that's what John's saying. Speaking in tongues, we can get into that later. You know where I stand on that. We've talked about that, but that's not what this is about. That was the evidence, they say. J.C. Ryle said, the baptism spoken of here is not baptism of water. It does not consist either of dipping or sprinkling. It does not belong exclusively either to infants or to grown-up people. It is not a baptism which any man can give. Episcopalian or Presbyterian, Baptist or Methodist, layman or minister, it is a baptism which the great head of the church keeps exclusively in his own hands. It consists of planting grace into the inward man. I love that. Planting grace into the inward man. It is the same thing as the new birth. It is a baptism not of the body but of the heart. It is a baptism which the penitent thief received on the cross. Though neither dipped nor sprinkled by the hand of man. It is a baptism which Ananias and Sapphira did not receive even though they professed Christ. Though they were admitted into church communion by apostolic men. So it's the privilege of every believer. You, if you're a Christian, you've been baptized into the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit. And other accounts of John's, uh, of, of John's baptism, Lord, uh, John the Baptist says something else important about Jesus' coming. And I want to spend but a, a minute on this. He says, Luke 3, 16 and 17, I'll just read this. I baptize you with water, but he was mightier than I was coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with water, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Mm. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and he adds and fire. It is a, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's a sense in which Jesus coming announces salvation for the world, but also Judgment. Holy Spirit and fire. This doesn't mean he comes to fire you up. There are some people who believe that. That's wrong. Because of what he goes on to say. His winnowing fork is in his hand. What is he talking about here? Well, the baptism of fire points to judgment. 
as does the winnowing fork. Because workers in Jesus' day, they would, they would thresh the wheat, throw the, the harvested grain into the wind and let the, with the, the, the winnowing fork and let the, the grains would fall directly to the ground. The chaff would be blown away. And eventually the chaff would be taken out and burned. And that's what he's saying here. The chaff the, in the church, there will be wheat and tares and the wheat will be with Christ and the chaff will be burned. Holy Spirit and fire. He's come to baptize all those outside of Christ with fire. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, that is you, beloved. And I, I warn you of God's wrath to come and I beg you to flee to Christ, to flee to him in repentance from your sins and faith in him. Flee to him today. Be the wheat, not the chaff. Because the Lamb of God came to take away the sins of the world. Verse 34, we finish. Verse 34, back in John 1. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. That's who the Lamb is. John heard the voice of the Father at Jesus' baptism. Behold, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the Son of God. He's, he's, giving, he's bearing witness to the Father's witness to him at the baptism. He's reporting. This is being a good reporter here. Jesus is the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And I think a lot of the transfiguration, there's only a handful of times that the, God spoke from heaven. The transfiguration. He said, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then another time, another occasion during the ministry of Jesus when God spoke audibly, the final week of Jesus' life in John 12, we'll get to this in a few weeks, a few months probably. Jesus prayed the Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I've glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd thought what? They thought it thundered. But God says, he's come, listen to him. But the audience thought another time it thundered. When you hear, when you hear of Jesus' name, do you, do you listen to him? Or did you just think maybe it thundered? That preacher up there, he's just kind of thundering. That's what preachers do. They're thundering from the pulpit, all right? They just kind of clear off a spot and they pitch a fit, as one old preacher put it. We need to listen to Jesus. But our tendency is to hear the voice of God and think it merely thundered. And I think as we, as we, as we um, begin to prepare our hearts for the meal, and I hope we're preparing our hearts this whole time for the Lord's Supper, Servers, you can go ahead and go to the back, whoever's involved in this, and get ready to give out the elements here in just a moment. I think the application here is simple. Have you trusted in the Lamb of God to take away your sin? I mean, have you really and truly trusted? I don't mean to go to church. Are you a member of this, of this church? You used to be a member of some other church. You just like church. Are you kind of like a, a, a moral, middle-class life? I'm not asking that. That's not it at all. Have you trusted in Him? to take away your sin. I mean, that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper, to picture for us through the bread and the cup, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because if you're not a follower of Christ, what is your deepest need? Well, I would argue that is your deepest need. If you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit into the people of God, do you rejoice in this truth? Or does this sermon, forget how it was delivered or who delivered it, okay? This text... Does it bore you? Does it bore you? You think the Lamb of God came away with the sin of the world? Great. Heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. Because we can be, hear it so much we become callous or just get used to hearing it. But I don't want you ever to get used to the fact that the Lamb of God took away your sin. I'm going to say this and say this and say this because I think we just, we're at ease in Zion. Every one of us. I tend to be this way too. I need to be shaken know what it is he has delivered me from. The judgment of God, the, the baptism. He's baptized me with the Spirit, but he won't baptize me with fire. Because he bore the fire on the cross. You think, maybe I don't really need the gospel anymore, Pastor. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've kind of moved beyond my need for the gospel. You never move beyond their need for the gospel. Preach it to yourself every single day. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away my sin so think about the supper ponder this 
He came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's coming a day that will be the last day, the last day of human history, when God will, the trumpet of God will sound as we sing in church. I grew up singing, and time will be no more. And the dead in Christ will rise, and we'll meet him in the air. Where will you be on that day? Will you be ready to meet him? Because that's also, it's a day of glory for us who are in him, but it's a day of judgment. Because the baptism of fire is coming when he brings his winnowing fork. Where will you be? Spurgeon made a, Spurgeon was second to none making an appeal to unbelievers. Let me read this to you and then we'll pray and we'll give out the elements. I can't say it better than Spurgeon. I know we're Lloyd-Jones or J.C. Ryan. I know, I know. I love quotes. Just love the word powerfully preached. He says, you that have no atoning sacrifice to plead, to plead before God in your place, how can you bear the weight of your sins? What will you do with them when death is on your brow? You for whom, according to your own creed, no debt was paid, no penalty endured, how will you answer justice in her great and terrible day? Believers look to Jesus as discharging all their debt they're not afraid of that day of account. But where will you look? Oh, what will you do? Do not remain without faith in him who stood in sinner's stead, in the sinner's stead. His work is exactly what your mind wants to give it peace. The satisfaction of Jesus will give your mind satisfaction and nothing else will. Conscience, like a horse leech, Crieth, give, give, and it will never cease its cravings till it meets with Christ, whose one full satisfaction will content it forever. Where's your conscience this morning? Has your conscience been assuaged? Is your conscience clear because you're in Christ? Have you met with Christ? Are you in Him? Let's pray. Father, I pray that everyone within my hearing, hearing of this message today would be saved and walking with you. I cannot save any one of these people. I cannot save myself. Only you can do that. So God, pour out your grace this morning upon those who may not know you. And for those of us who may be at ease in Zion, who may be lax and comfortable and just accustomed to hearing the gospel and just or maybe a connoisseur of sermons, oh God, awaken us with, and give us joy with a great salvation we have, that the Lamb of God has come and He's taken away our sins. And, oh God, bring revival among us. Pour out Your Spirit upon us, God. Do work in us what You alone can do. And do it, God, for Your glory. Do it for Your glory. I pray this in the strong, the mighty, the great name of Jesus Christ, risen Lord. Amen.